Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek. And today we're privileged to have Professor Harvey Kay back on the podcast. He's got a wonderful new book, FDR on Democracy, The Greatest Speeches and Writings of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And it's just a delight to have him back, uh, expert on many American history, uh, Thomas Paine, and in the previous book on FDR is also excellent, The Fight for Four Freedoms, What makes FD- What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great. Uh, glad to have you back on the pod, Harvey. Welcome. This is exciting. I missed you guys. I mean, I hear you on the podcast and we, we stay in touch, but it's really great to see you guys as we're doing this by way of video amongst ourselves. Yeah. Great to see you as well. Yeah, sort of a little impromptu happy hour, so to speak. <laughs> you know, reading this this book, I would say the the interesting thing that jumps out from all these speeches, you know, I, I'd read maybe one or two of them before, but uh, you yeah. know, I not I most of them were new. And what it what it uh demonstrates is that uh Roosevelt, you know, th- there's this sort of popular legend that you hear. I mean, I think Francis Perkins said it in, who was FDR's Secretary of Labor in like 1946, that Roosevelt was kind of a moderate. You know, you hear this from Jonathan Chait, that that he was a, uh, you know, so he wanted to be the balance wheel between capital and labor. And you hear it from uh, like Jonathan Alter, you know, who who has written about how FDR was basically like Bill Clinton, you know, in most important respects. But you know, you you see this uh, these speeches uh, from you know back in the the nineteen teens and and nineteen twenty nine when he started his you know before the Great Depression happened and then getting stronger into the thirty two campaign that uh, you know he had a fundamental ideological challenge to the sort of prevailing individualist self regulating capitalism and his vision of how the economy works bears a really striking similarity to Karl Polanyi uh, in that, you know, he says uh, that that the the like the fundamental fact of, you know, the way the economy works is about interdependence. There is no such thing as people who are self-reliant, you know, who, who take care of everything themselves. You know, there for every single thing you could possibly buy, there are thousands of people who are involved in manufacturing the thing or getting the raw materials or transporting it to market, you know, so it's all, we're all part necessarily part of this together. And so, you know, can you, can you comment on that? You know, how, you know, uh, FDR sort of basic picture of the economy, uh, you know, and, and his challenge to Herbert Hoover, you know, as the depression was sort of like tearing society to pieces. Yeah, I, actually, I want to make a, a reference to an earlier speech, in fact, that I include in the volume, which will take us into the, the very question you've raised. Um, back in 1912, he gave a speech to the People's Forum. And people, and he was a politician. He was looking to make his way. But it is interesting that if you, in this early speech, what what's really striking, and I try to, and I, as people will discover if they pick up the book, I don't just include whole speeches. I try to edit them down so they're readable and, and I hope enjoyable and inspiring. In this speech of 1912, what Roosevelt does is he struggles. You can, you can feel the struggle uh, that he's trying to, that he's pursuing to, to not be pro-capitalist on the one hand, or for that matter, come out directly as a socialist. And he comes up with this very strange term, but this is a term that I think is sort of a premonition of what 
he will call later liberalism and we would call social democracy. He calls it liberty of the community because he really wants to overcome the narrow sense of liberty as the libertarian individualist notion. And he wants to talk about the degree to which we are in this together, but we're in this together, not in terms of, you know, top and bottom alone. It's the idea that we're in this together as a community. And he actually thinks out loud and talks out loud about how, well, if he, if he spoke in certain words, he'd be called a socialist. If he spoke in other words, and he comes, he talks about cooperation versus competition, but he's even then in 1912 struggling to find a way towards social democracy. Now I want to indicate something to put it in historical context. You might say, well, why didn't he just call it social democracy? The thing is that in the late 19th century into the early 20th, the originally what we would think of as anarchists, they called themselves social democrats. The first rendition of the Socialist Party in the United States was called the Social Democratic Party. And then when Debs and there were two socialist movements that merged, they created the Socialist Party itself. So Roosevelt's not like He's not ready to join the Socialist Party, but he is very keen on socializing democracy. That is pushing the original American vision that's found in the Declaration and elsewhere, even by way of Thomas Paine. He wants to push that in the Bill of Rights in a way that encompasses economic questions and not simply the threat of the state, but also the threat of large corporations. So anyhow, if we go forward to the campaigns, first of all, for governor, and then he, all the more for the campaign for the presidency, we see Roosevelt, and I can tell you, historians over and over again generally underestimated Roosevelt. They quoted people of his day who said, but over and over again, he speaks of the rights of working people. He speaks, speaks of the imperative of, the, of addressing, making government address the needs of the forgotten man, and he means forgotten men and women. I mean, it's pretty clear that he's trying to push not a, just a new kind of liberalism, but I would go so far as to say an idea of social democracy, even if he's not using the term. Absolutely. And, and one might say that like at the time when the failures of capitalism were uh, really kind of wreaking havoc upon the nation, in a sense, social democracy was the middle way between fascism and, you know, the Bolshevik way, right? So like in that sense, you could say it was a middle path, but it, but it certainly would be radical uh, today. And, um, and what I really liked, I also want to just mention real briefly uh, about the book. Uh, I indeed enjoyed how you, you know, introduced each piece and how you curated them and set them up against each other chronologically to give a real um, narrative, which is fitting for FDR, but also seeing how, as you just mentioned, his project evolves in 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 both uh, coherence, but in his ability rhetorically to refine the message for the times as as times change. And and I thought that was very powerful. And I did see so many things relevant to today that I'm sure we're going to dig into um, that you could just pull the quote straight out, and it applies exactly to this moment. Yeah. In fact, if I can go back to something Ryan said and bring these things together that the two of you said, um, it's interesting, Ryan. There was a speech that Hoover gave. I think it was when he was running in 1928 for the presidency, when he won the presidency. And he talks about the fact that the American system was in fact leading to a, tr a triumph over, over want and fear, which, yeah. and I don't know, if, <laughs> right? 
And I don't know if Roosevelt himself ever read or heard that speech in particular, but it is interesting to consider that Hoover's own words, which are bound up in what he thought of as the American system, which is not that far away from what people often call laissez-faire capitalism, and that is the government which governs least is the best kind of thing. Um, but it's interesting, of course, Roosevelt takes the fear and want and builds them into the four freedoms, right? Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. And I, I would love to know, but I don't know if Roosevelt actually heard that speech in some way and that he was going to sort of shove it back in the Republicans' faces years later. And then, as you said, uh, Alexei, one of the interesting things about Roosevelt is that in many ways you can see his development in his speeches. But from start to finish, going back in some ways to 1912, but especially if you look at the 1932 campaign and his speech of in the autumn at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, where he actually lays out a sort of narrative of American history to the, and the degree to which the original social contract, as indicated in the, in the Declaration of Independence, was basically that we had lost touch with it, that it had been literally, you know, sort of yeah. you know, marginalized yeah. as an idea of America in the course of the 19th century as industrial capitalism and the titans of industry emerge. And he, he rationalizes how that emerged, but he then ultimately says it's time to take back the power to paraphrase him, and he calls yeah. for an economic declaration of rights right there in 1932, which, of course, is like a, a, a premonition of the Four Freedoms and then all the more the 1944 speech in which he lays out the, or he presents the economic Bill of Rights. It reminds me of Lincoln insofar as, and I think this is in keeping with the project that, that you're involved with, uh, the response to the reactionary forces of the time for both Lincoln and FDR were to not move away from uh, the American dream as one might do seeing all the evil and, and suffering and death brought on by these forces, but instead to point to, as, as he did there, the purpose and promise of this country from the beginning and to reclaim and redeem that purpose and promise through the things that are called for in this time against those forces, right? Yeah, I mean, in fact, it's, it really is amazing. They're so utterly different, Lincoln and Roosevelt, right? Their backgrounds are different the sort of poor farming kid uh, with, with, with ambitions versus the case of Roosevelt, the aristocrat almost, you know, the, the, the man who grew up as part of a gentry family in the Hudson Valley of New York had, although, he, and he was not part of the new wealth of America, he was part of the old wealth of America. But they both found that, that, that argument and their narrative in looking back rooted in the Declaration of Independence. And... In that sense, I'll also tell you, it's really great. In 19, I know I'm going to get the year wrong, say 19, 1931, give or take a year, uh, Roosevelt sends a, sends a letter, or at least he remarks to a very prominent uh, intellectual and historian in the Democratic Party. He says to him, you know, the Republicans have basically turned their backs on Lincoln. I think we should make him one of our own. And you can see the way in which, the way in which Roosevelt, he's, he's going to start accumulating a, a a small D, capital D, democratic pantheon. It's going to include, he, he does make many a reference to Washington, but it's Lincoln and it's Jefferson. Now, undeniably, undeniably, he's not specifically a historian and he's looking to grab hold of the things that can effectively make him the history teacher in chief. But what's really fundamental to that is that he actually believed, and I think Lincoln did too, and Lincoln, many of his speeches had to do with not forgetting 
warning Americans not to forget. What, what they both had in common was this the possible fear that Americans might forget, but more importantly, they held on to a belief that M Americans had a sense of, of what it meant to be an American that was historically rooted. And their task was to speak to that, okay? That as much as possible, engage, if you like, a fundamental American cultural memory or imagination. And in fact, I can tell you, I, I'm really t I opened the previous book that we talked about, Take Hold of Our History, with, at, opened and closed with Lincoln. And I, could, I, I know there's millions of books on Lincoln, but it, I can see myself doing some work on Lincoln because it becomes all the more fascinating when you approach him from one hand through Thomas Paine, my hero, and from my presidential hero, Franklin Roosevelt. There's this, there is this link, this, I don't want, what did, what did Lincoln call the mystic chords of memory? That's it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, they're definitely, I would say in the same league as, um, <clears throat> you know, they face very different problems, Lincoln and FDR, but there, yes. there are certain, you know, in terms of like the best sort of executives we ever had, I think those are one and two, you know, you could sort of order them how you like, depending on your, you know, personal preference, but you know, uh, there's really nobody else who comes close. Um, but one difference between Lincoln and Roosevelt, um, I think uh, Roosevelt had a better sense for the, you know, the the power possibilities and sort of pitfalls of the, you know, an advanced industrial economy. Um, and one one way that comes out, you know, Lincoln had his sort of free labor system, which I, you know, just r really was not a very workable sort of democratic ideology, and it completely fell apart in uh, 1873. But you see with, you know, uh, uh, Roosevelt's speeches, you know, the, the idea that the state needs to take a much more active role in regulating economic stuff, and, and especially in uh, direct state ownership of the, you know, important facilities like power dams. And that comes yes. out in his, uh, uh, let's see, I think in 1929 speech, he's talking about all the potential power that you could generate with all the rivers that are flowing through New York and that it would be absolutely unacceptable to allow that to fall into private hands, that this should be the people's power. It's a natural resource. It should be run by the government at cost and give people the cheapest electricity that, that they can produce. And that was indeed something he really pursued vigorously as president, right? And I think that's a, you know... Uh, Bernie Sanders talks about, you know, public public power for the Green New Deal. And it's like, ah, oh, look at this communist. You know, it's like we still have it today. The Tennessee Valley Authority. It's right there. Yeah, I, actually, two things you said that I'd like to respond to. And one of them is the fact that the, the question of public ownership of the kind of national infrastructure is very much rooted in in Roosevelt's beginnings as a capital P progressive Democrat back in 1912, basically to have municipally owned, you know, water availability, you know, water transit systems and, and so on. And I can't help but imagine that, that in some ways he takes that idea and is sort of projecting it onto the level of the state of New York, okay, that these are essential. And he realized that private companies will not, will not build and supply electricity to farmers, to the, you know, to family farms. They just won't do it. So this is a vision for New York State. 
And then it becomes a vision, as, as you know, inside of the New Deal, when he creates the Rural Electrification Agency, which provides hundreds of thousands of farmers who had no access to electricity because private companies would not waste their time because of the question of profitability. And the Rural Electrification Agency, what they did is they set up and organized cooperatives so that literally, truly hundreds of thousands of farmers would, would get there. By the way, I want to say one thing about Lincoln in, in his defense, okay? Sure. And, okay, and, and this comes out of a book that Harold Holzer and Norton Garfinkel produced, but this is one that I think a lot of us have been thinking about especially those of us who, I don't know about you guys, but I went to a land-grant university. I got my first degree at Rutgers. I got my graduate degree over in England, but I came back and went eventually to Louisiana State, two land-grant universities. And here I am in the state of Wisconsin at a land-grant university. And this is the thing. Even in the midst of the Civil War, Lincoln was not only you know, possessed of the free labor ideology, not unlike Roosevelt, he believed that, that needy men are not free men or needy people are not free people. So what does he do? Two major acts he signs into law, two major bills he signs into law in 1862, even as the Civil War is going so badly for, 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 the, for the United States versus the Confederacy. One of them is the Land-Grant Act, also known as the Marill Act, which gives lands to all of the states which they can then transfer into resources to create state universities. And now every state in the union has a land-grant university. That's a very social democratic initiative, which, by the way, the counterpart to that is Bernie Sanders' idea of free public higher education for young people. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful sort of kind of thing, right? So in 1862, he also signed into law the Homestead Act, which was, by the way, an idea of, of folks who had been influenced by Thomas Paine and this began as an idea in the, in the 1830s. But Lincoln signs into law the Homestead Act, which provides lands, uh, you know, family farms to immigrant and native-born working-class families to be able to, you know, set, up, set themselves up at a, at a minimal cost as farmers in the, in the Midwest, in the Plain States. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the rural electri electrification thing, I mean, this is just one of a panoply of New Deal programs and, and institutions that are still sort of like part of the bedrock, you know, insofar as the U.S. is a functioning society, like those things are all over the place. And, and one reason why, you know, you have all these power dams that they built, you have all these schools and, and uh, roads and bridges and stuff that they built, uh, post offices all over the place. Oh yes, the 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 political aspects of this are also, I think, worth pointing out. You know, there, there's a great section in Robert Caro's book when uh, Lyndon Johnson was a young congressman during the New Deal, and he was breaking all the rules for the the Rural Electrification uh, Administration or whatever it was uh, to get uh, power to all of his constituents in West Texas hills, you know, which yeah. as Carol mm -hmm. writes, you know, these folks were living like medieval peasants, you know, they were, they were hauling water from like 300 foot deep wells, you know, by the, by the hundreds of gallons a day to do their washing and their irrigation and so on. And Johnson brought cheap power to all these folks so they could get pumps and they could get washing machines and so on. And it just totally transformed the character of the life for these people. And they became, absolutely diehard Democrats. They, you know, Johnson was a guy who could do no wrong. He brought the lights, as they said. And th this is a, a sort of basic tenet of politics that seems to be lost <laughs> in modern times. The idea that you should just give your constituents, like, 
you know, not irresponsibly, but a nice benefit in, insofar as you can do it. And uh, then they will appreciate that, you know, a nice, clear thing that the, that the government gives you. And uh, so you should keep voting for that party so you can keep having the benefit, right? I mean, this... Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, one of the things I keep thinking about, because we're going to have to look beyond November, obviously, is the degree to which people on the left really have to start thinking about how to go how to go deep, not deep as in sense of theoretically and ideologically, but have to go deep into what indeed matters to American working people and make sure that what matters to American working people is what we speak of and speak to in a language that people will immediately understand and embrace. So when we think about Roosevelt, he really did understand. He was very well educated by going to Harvard and Columbia for law school. But the more important thing is, is that during the 1920s, when he was essentially incapacitated and desperately seeking a way to liberate himself from his polio, which he never would completely do, he's, he's at home, either in New York City at times and especially up at Hyde Park. And it's Eleanor Roosevelt who is literally working in New York City with working class folks by way of the trade, the Women's Trade Union League. And regularly, she brings back labor and socialist Jewish immigrant organizers to Hyde Park and elsewhere. And Roosevelt is, is educated by these, these women, these East European Jewish women, as to what the needs of working people are. And it, in many ways, he's, he's humanized by his own polio affliction. But he's also, if you like, humanized and, if you like, organized <laughs> even by these socialist Jewish women, you know, who had been working on the Lower East Side and elsewhere in Manhattan to organize women and others into 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 unions. So when he runs for the governorship in New York and then all the more as president, he really is bringing with him a sense of what working people need and what he might be able to do for them. And it's interesting. He he speaks regularly of something we don't hear very much about, but it sure as hell would be would have been it would have been good to hear more Democrats recognize this. He talks about people want jobs, they want economic security. But he tied all of that to a democratic vision of empowerment, not only of affording people work, but affording them the right to organize, the right to collective bargaining. Pushed, you know, one of the beauties of Roosevelt is he was willing to be pushed and he wanted to be pushed, whether it was by the likes of Robert Wagner, the senator from New York, who is in many ways rightly accorded the, uh, you know, the, t the title pilot of the New Deal in, in the Senate, and also the father of the National Labor Relations Act of 1935. So Roosevelt is prepared to be pushed and is prepared to be pulled, whether it's by organized workers, by socialist organizers, by senators such as Robert Wagner, Robert La Follette, and George Norris, who, and Norris is the guy who really influenced him to think in terms of big public works projects and provide energy to, to American workers and farmers. Indeed, it's, it seems like he not only understood that for himself, but part of his leadership was to instill that very understanding of what it meant to be a citizen uh, uh, to everyone, and especially perhaps to the next uh, group of elites that would come up. So in his commencement speech that he gave, he um, 
I think I don't know if it was what what year 1932 he gave the the commencement speech. Yeah, early on. Um, but he, he spoke. Like that, yeah. Thirty-three. I think so. I think it's three. So, so he he spoke, of course, the first duty as as the student is probably expected to use all this knowledge that you've gained in a way that contributes. But then the second thing, uh, which I didn't see coming, but but strikes me as even more important, perhaps, he called on them all to obtain and maintain contact with average citizens. So he was in his leadership instilling in those that were graduating, those that were they're educated, to, to not just feel vaguely responsible, but to understand what the needs are and to be in contact with the people. And this is perhaps, you know, not a coincidence that this is integral to what it means to be a social democrat, right? Yeah. And, you know, as you said that, I was also thinking about the fact. So in the 1920s, when he's running for governor and then and later when he's going to run for president, he was I mean, he was incapacitated, basically. And he. He could not leave the automobile that took him from town to town in New York State. And what he would do is he would have with him quite often Eleanor. And it was her job to get out of the car and go into wherever they were, whether it was, you know, some kind of um, factory or some set of workshops. And he would talk to those who were out on the street or who could come out and she would talk inside. And at the end of the day, they would sit and she would report to him the things that he might not have gotten to hear because he couldn't readily get out of the car. He didn't want to be seen as, as, as basically the disabled person that he was. So he's always eager. He wants to know. He desperately wants to know. And, to, and by the way, when he was giving the fireside chats through the 1930s into the 1940s, he regularly he invites Americans. They have a feeling that they're not only being invited into, into the White House, as a member of the audience of the, of the fireside chat, but he wants to hear from them. And during the course of the 1920, 1930s as president, he was getting hundreds of thousands of letters at the white house. And he would have a, a, a team of, of women specifically who would open the letters and read them and determine which ones should make their way into the oval office. He, he always wanted to know what was going on in the American mind. He also was one of the first, his, I believe the first president who commissioned polls, P-O-L-L-S, to ask Americans, what did they want? To, and mm-hmm. that, that's the second thing. And, the, and then interesting observation among his staff, this lot of this comes out in my, from my research on the book, The Fight for the Four Freedoms. His closest advisors marveled at the degree to which he had a kind of confidence that what he said would be readily understood by the people who were out there in radio land, you might say. Mm. I mean, I, I, maybe, look, I mean, maybe yeah, because he did, because he did keep in contact with them, perhaps, you know, and, and I mean, we could draw parallels to Bernie Sanders here as well, because it, it you know, he also said, as he, as he suggested before, he doesn't just want to fight for the people, but he wants to encourage the fight in them. And he also yeah. saw the need to speak to the youth and call upon the youth who, who should, who need to have a more, more of a clarity of vision than the current generation. These things seem to pair to, to map on to Bernie and the movement uh, very well. And of course, Trump is, is the Hoover, right? You know, <laughs> Hoover was probably a little more decent <laughs> than Trump, if, if, if you don't mind that. You know, but in that vein, it's interesting that in 1935, when, um, when Roosevelt knew that Americans wanted more of a new deal, he, wanted, they want, that he knew they wanted him to go further than he had originally gone in 1933 in the first 100 days. 
and a dialectic, excuse the expression, the term dialectic. No, we dialectic. like that here. We, we actually must very, we approve. We approve of the dialectic here on this well, podcast. Well, there's an interesting dialectic. He knows that Americans, in, by way of their diverse movements, at, but whether it's the labor movement, the call for some kind of social security, whatever it was, he knew Americans wanted more. But even then, as he, as he pushed the idea of social security, when he pushed the idea of diverse programs that would address the needs of working people and farmers, like rural electrification, like the WPA and other things, he actually had his cabinet go out and speak. And he himself gave a speech that basically came down to this. He said to Americans, new laws in themselves do not bring the next millennium. They do not bring the millennium. We're not going to, in other words, even if we pass the laws, you're going to still have to fight to make sure those laws are honored by those who never wanted those laws to begin with. And he had in mind especially uh, the housewives of America who were married indeed to union members. So, for example, in 1935, Roosevelt had given a speech in which he basically said, you know, new laws in themselves are not going to bring the, the, the millennium. It's not going to bring like, you know, the 21st century or some kind of great social democratic uh, transformation in itself. You're going to have to continue fighting. And from New York all the way across the country to the West Coast, including Dakota farmsteads, housewives organized. I think it was The Nation magazine said it was the first national women's movement, you know, of a truly progressive sort. And it, it was really that called the housewives movement. And they were demanding that government intervene to make sure that capital, that businesses do not take advantage of them in the midst of shortages or in the, in the, in the, in the process of recovery. Well, if you think about this, I mean, th this is what Roosevelt wanted. He wanted these movements, whether it was labor or housewives movements or later youth movements, to push him, to push him further than he would otherwise have gone. It not only empowered him, it also enabled him to say to Congress, look, this is what the American people want. You want to get reelected. You're going to have to respond to these American demands. So we, we, he's far more radical I believe, and this is the way you open, I think this is what you were implying at the opening of our conversation. It's far more radical than historians have allowed for. I mean, this is a president, if you, if you can allow me, I, I want to I actually quote Roosevelt in what I consider to be the most radical speech ever given by a president. We'll this, let you, this, this once, just this once, Harvey, it, just this once, well, we'll let you. This has to do with the idea of this dialectic that developed between Roosevelt and the American people, where he was quite often sort of inviting their political energies, inviting them to remember who they were and to remember that they are indeed fundamentally radicals, if not indeed revolutionists. And in his acceptance speech at the Democratic Convention, which was held outdoors in a baseball stadium, must have been 100,000 people. Well, it doesn't matter. In any case, it was nationally broadcast. He gives a speech in which he recalls the American Revolution, and he talks about the American Revolution as a fight against political royalism, political royalists. And he, sa he basically says, look, we're engaged today in a battle with economic royalists. We're in the tradition of the American Revolution. And nothing, there is no finer paragraph than this one. These economic royalists complain, this is Roosevelt speaking, they complain that we seek to overthrow the institutions of America. What they really complain of is that we seek to take away their power. Our allegiance to American institutions requires the overthrow of this kind of power. In vain, they seek to hide behind the flag and the Constitution. In their blindness, they forget what the flag and the Constitution stand for. Now, as always, they stand for democracy, 
not tyranny, for freedom, not subjection, and against a dictatorship by mob rule and the overprivileged alike. I mean, he's calling upon them to remember the radicalism of the American Revolution and to realize the degree to which they're involved once again in this kind of revolutionary movement to, you know, to reassert. This is like going back again. I, I love 19, that. That 1932 speech, he calls for a new economic declaration of rights. I mean, this is, yep. look, we know that Roosevelt committed terrible, tragic mistakes. The internment of the Japanese Americans, the, 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 the segregated military, the Jim Crow segregated military, the failure on his part, which would have been a hell of a, an achievement if he could have changed things, to get Congress to raise the quotas on, on, on refugees from Nazi Germany, the Jews in particular. We know these things, but we also have to realize that even those folks whom had reason not to believe in the American promise did so because they did actually believe in FDR. And Japanese Americans in, in great numbers served in World War II. African Americans did not allow a segregated military to keep them from volunteering and serving as 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 aggressively and assertively and as proudly and courageously as anyone else. And Jewish Americans served out of their out of their numbers in the army and the navy during World War II. This is Roosevelt, who is the history teacher, the narrator in chief, who is really trying, as you said earlier, uh, uh, Alexi, he's really trying to encourage young people to see over the horizon to believe that, in fact, a greater, truly greater, in my terms, social democratic America can be built. Right. And those failures were clearly failures that went against the principles he was fighting for. So they, they weren't failures uh, of his principles that were bad. They were failures to live up to his own principles, I would yes. say. Um, right. but, but he wasn't. So it, this is a tricky balance that whether it's Bernie Sanders or the left generally, it's a tricky thing to, to inspire and give hope while calling out very difficult truths of the moment. And so I, he talked about power a lot, I noticed. He, he would speak very cleverly of um, the lost purchasing power. So, yes. so uh, speaking to lots of people could understand this in a sense, like it's not right to lose your purchasing power. And, and he would, he used the, the language of business. He said, you know what our, our most expensive commodity is these days, justice is our most expensive commodity. And I thought that was just brilliant. <laughs> That's a line I missed. Thank you for recalling it. You're right. Yeah. Uh, that, that is brilliant. Um, you know, he over and over again spoke of democracy. And I, 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 I love the fact that he, he always saw, he saw the times in which he lived as not an, an effort to sort of bring about his own effort to bring it about, not as a new millennium, but literally to, he had the sense, which I think goes back to the progressives as well, that if you're going to defend democracy, you have to create more democracy. That's the, that's the most important thing that comes out. And as president and as politician, as you, as you noted, my, I love the, the, the thought that he not only wanted to fight for Americans, he wanted to encourage the fight in Americans. He didn't pull back from that. Even, for example, it's really great. In, 1930, in 1936, during the, the sit-down strikes in Flint, Michigan, in the Chevy plant, when the workers have occupied and sat down in the plant, and uh, the governor of the state, Frank Murphy, calls out the National Guard into everyone's surprise and shock by capital, he actually tells the National Guard that they should aim their bayonets out, not in, meaning defend the workers against the thugs that, the, that, the, that General Motors is probably going to be sending at, against them. 
And when Roosevelt was asked by not only the, the, the capitalists, but by others, what, aren't you going to intervene in some way? I think he said something to the effect of, well, it can't be worse than a misdemeanor what they're doing, right? I mean, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> isn't that great? It really is. I just love it. <laughs> and well, and that speaks also to uh, Roosevelt's. Um, uh, uh, Can I just add? I'm sorry. I should just add one thing. This is the same Frank Murphy that Roosevelt proceeded to appoint to become Attorney General of the United States, and then appointed to the Supreme Court of the United States. Nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, but that, that speaks to, to, uh, Roosevelt's, uh, boldness and aggressiveness, which is something that seems to be totally foreign to, uh, democratic leaders in this day and age. You know, you just have a whole generation, you know, with the exception of Bernie Sanders and maybe a few sort of up and comers, you know, you're looking at Chuck Schumer, Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi. These are very timid, uh, politicians, at least when it comes to confronting, you know, the power yes. of the right or the power of capitalists. And, you know, you, you read, you read some of these speeches, um, 1932, the, the speech about, you know, the, 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 what, what the country needs is bold experimentation. And in his, uh, inauguration address in 1933, he sort of threatens that if Congress doesn't go along with what he thinks is necessary, he's just going to use his, his executive powers to, uh, you know, to, like try to stop the depression, which, you know, in his view is like threatening the country with uh, disintegration or revolution. And where do you, th where do you think that, um, you know, the idea that you need to govern uh, and you need to, in, and in a crisis, you need to govern very aggressively um, where did that come from and where did it go? Why is it that today's, uh, generation of politicians seem just like allergic to, to wielding power of any kind? Well, if we go, if we think on the personal level for a start, let's not forget that Roosevelt was an, was fairly independent of money. In other words, he didn't need the money power. And in fact, it's probably the case that he resented the industrial capitalists, as an old money person, he might have resented <laughs> them. Okay, that's that's for a start. But but it's also the case that I don't think we should forget the fact that he came up through through the nineteen teens, and his it's his cousin is Teddy Roosevelt, and he saw and although he goes far beyond Teddy Roosevelt in his alliance with labor, and he goes far beyond Teddy Roosevelt in his willingness to wield in many ways, executive power. It is the case that he knew his cousin, the elder, you know, who basically was the age of his, what would have been an uncle. He knew that Teddy Roosevelt was willing to push and punch when it was necessary. It was also the case that he served in the, in the Wilson administration, which could have taught him the worst of things as well. But in the Wilson administration, he basically ran the, the Naval Department. He was the assistant secretary of the Navy, and he learned to work with labor unions, but he also learned that during wartime, there were things that presidents need to do. So that may well be a good part of it. But then it's also the case that, that he was governor of New York when the Depression hit. And given his commitment to working people, I think it's the case that because he was governor of New York, he had this incredible position in the, in the nation. It, New York was the the most important state in the United States. It was rightly called then the Empire State. And I think he felt a he felt a commitment to working people, and he felt also a commitment to make use of the powers that were available to him, first as governor, 
and then as president. I can tell you that the very thing you referred to, Ryan, actually scared a lot of people. For a moment, they thought, uh-oh, you know, FDR is taking seriously the fact that, that editors of magazines and others have been calling for a Mussolini-type figure. But Roosevelt was anything but a Mussolini-type figure. In his first 100 days as president, having made those kinds of remarks, in every one of the programs that they passed, that they, every one of those laws that they enacted, fundamentally written into every one of them was a democratic practice. So the SEC is literally going to have a public democratic control over Wall Street, right? The National Industrial Recovery Act, even though it allows businesses to do things they hadn't been able to do before in terms of setting prices and all of that, it's the case that it builds into the law the right of labor to organize, which later they had to revise in a more effective way in, in, in the National Labor Relations Act. The Agricultural Adjustment Act literally organized cooperatives of farmers who will directly involve themselves in pricing and cooperative agricultural endeavors. So what Roosevelt had in mind is not just the power of the presidency and the ability to use executive action. It was also the empowerment of working people. And that would be the only way that he could, in that fashion, go after the powers of capital. He, he knew how to do it. And which is something, by the way, that Lyndon Johnson did not include when he came into office in the 1960s. Now, he loved FDR. He wanted to literally copy the New Deal by way of in the Great Society, but he didn't do what FDR did. He did not seek to empower labor. Yeah, and I, I mean, I guess it's just the case that, um, you know, Democrats over the years have kind of forgotten, maybe semi-deliberately, that, that tradition. Oh, yes. Oh, sorry, I left, off, I left off the other part of the answer. Forgive me. The other part of the thing is that what we've seen for all too many decades now is that the Democrats have become, to use the populist term, they've, become, they've literally become sort of the, the, the pawns of the money power, right? I mean, every one of the Democratic senators is in some ways beholding. So what was it Chuck Schumer was you know, defending the hedge fund guys, right? Uh, Joe Biden was defending the, uh, the, the credit card companies. Uh, one by one, we could go right through the list and see the degree to which they are more in, in intimate relations with the powers of capital. You know I, I like how you talk about that because I want to make a BDSM analogy here. So what, what we're <laughs> oh, saying, God. I think, I think is that, t t t no, 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 just stay with me. Stay with I'm me with here. No, this no, goes back cool. to the dialectic. Okay. Today's democratic, today's democratic elite, they want to be the submissives. They want to be the, the masochists, uh, to the elite, the donor class, the, the, the wealthy masters. Whereas Roosevelt wanted to be the submissive to the people and wanted the people to push him around and, 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 and shake him up when he needed to, to have, uh, you know, to be told what he needs to do, right? So if we're going to make a little saucy kind of spicy analogy, <laughs> there's just different, different masters that are being served here. Well, you know, as a, look, I mean, I won't get as saucy as that. I could, but that, I don't want to go there right now. Okay. Right, but, double but, dog dare you, Harvey. <laughs> Well, here's the thing. Imagine this. Look, you and I have been in a lot of contact by way of messaging, but we haven't talked to on the. We should be talking to each other more. We should do that more. Let's have virtual you know, happy it, hour. Right. More it often. is the Let's do it. Think about. I can't tell you. I am still outraged at the Democratic Party debates. How dare the likes of Biden and Klobuchar and the whole and all the others look at the American people, stand before the American people the national audience, and say, we cannot afford Medicare for all. How dare they? You know? But, but hey, it, 
Me- oh, wait, personally, they the- can't afford it because they won't get the donations. Well, you know, screw that. Here's the thing, okay? The point is, yes, they, they are beholden. They are enthralled, you know, you might say. But here's the thing. Bernie, I was so eager, and he didn't do it. What Bernie needed to do when a, when a question was thrown his way is he should have looked out at the American people and said, you know, I don't understand. We're supposed to be talking for the Democratic Party. The greatest Democratic president ever was Franklin Roosevelt, who in 1935 signed into law the Social Security Act and the National Labor Relations Act. We haven't talked about labor. We haven't talked about empowering workers. And do you all know that, that FDR wanted national health care in the Social Security Act, but he couldn't get it because the American Medical Association, the Republican Party, and the Southern Democrats all had their respective reasons for not allowing it. The Southern Democrats wanted to make sure blacks did not integrate hospitals. The Republican Party was the party of big business, and the American Medical Association was afraid of losing their whatevers, right? He could have literally called FDR into the room, just as Eugene Debs did on occasion when he called in Lincoln and Thomas Paine and others. And then if Biden and the rest had the audacity to come at him, they'd be coming at Roosevelt. Yeah, that's right. One wonders, though, whether how how well that attack would land, though, given I mean, it seems like the the voters have have also kind of forgotten the, the true history of the the New Deal. You know, I mean, that's pretty remote in time. And, uh, you know, Democratic politicians don't often talk about, I mean, Obama was openly contemptuous of FDR's yes. approach. You know, he said, well, yeah. he said that, uh, you know, that, that he, he believed Herbert Hoover's lie that, that, uh, FDR had deliberately allowed the depression to get worse during the transition in 1932, you know, 33 winter, um, so that he could get the new deal through. And that was by his by his view irresponsible, um, which you know we we did a whole episode yeah. with Eric Rashway about that. That's complete, <laughs> yes. uh, you know, it's fake right. bullshit history. But yet it right. seems to have a grip that the you know the I mean we see today. You know why did Nancy Pelosi not propose an alternative bailout package and exploit the leverage? You know as the markets were collapsing and so on to get some goodies for you know more goodies for the American people and maybe universal vote by mail. Um, I think because she, she thought that you just had to give Steven Mnuchin a giant slush fund. And if she did something that might, you know, that, that might be a point of leverage for dangerous populists to, well, uh, and look, well, I, I, I mean, sorry, you go ahead. Sorry, Alexa, you go. Oh, oh just, you, cause you, you had, I mean, you talk about how Hoover had a $2 billion slush fund and the people were outraged because it wasn't getting to the, the farmers and the homeowners. And that's another parallel to today. But the, the difference I see is like Fox News, CNN, and MSNBC are, are the sources for the people's public education on these things. And, you know, they're, they're in the pockets of, of the donor class and they're doing things um, that doesn't help the ability of the average citizen to understand that history. And like in, ter- in terms of cultural education, it's too bad that Hamilton is the zeitgeist for, for musicals because, you know, FDR yeah. talks about the cult of Hamilton. If, if instead it was Thomas Paine or Jefferson or Lincoln, maybe we'd be, we'd have a different uh, chance here. Right? Yes. As about, well, here, here's a thought. And I, this is something I was tweeting the whole time. I was sending messages and I can now tell you that I actually sent a memo directly to Bernie Sanders and I'm told it got to him, but it didn't seem to, make the big difference. Bernie Sanders 
at the end of every debate, I was outraged with the Democrats, but I was particularly disappointed with Bernie. You, Ryan, you make a good, a good, you ask a good question. Would Americans remember? Well, that's why Bernie Sanders, from start to finish, needed to become what FDR was, the history teacher in chief. And I, by the way, I can, I, I'll give you the dramatic moment. He holds up the new book, FDR and Democracy, and he, and, he, and he points and he says, you need to read up on FDR. That's how you do it. And then he lays out, he lays out what the New Deal was truly about. You know, FDR created these alphabet soup of agencies. But what's also remarkable is that Americans themselves answer those agencies with their labors, but also with their politics. So for every agency that the New Deal involved, and it's usually like AAA or, or NIRA or REA, whatever, WPA, PWA, Americans themselves organized the UAW, the United Rubber Workers, the United Steel Workers. I mean, I can go on and on. Young people organized the American Youth Congress that, by way of diverse organizations, had four and a half million members. Um, I mean, FDR wanted exactly that to happen. Bernie Sanders, they, it, he failed himself and ultimately us because he didn't take the next step and speak of FDR all the time. Why waste his time explaining democratic socialism? I'm serious. That was so, a so waste here, of time. Here, let, we, we we can debate. I'm not sure. I, that that's we that that's a whole discussion that that's worthwhile. Sure. But but I, I I will I will say this. How would FDR have dealt with this? Because it seems to me. Don't forget the exit polls show that Bernie's platform is incredibly popular in the Democratic Party. Yes. Uh, so so even if if Biden is winning the votes, Bernie's platform is winning the people, right? And and, and the the media the media and establishment basically as as Ryan tweeted earlier today, uh, Biden Biden was barely um, expected to win South Carolina until the Jim Clyburn endorsement and then the whole establishment in like 48 hours most, coalesced yeah. around him. Right. And, and right. then his popularity tripled. Right. In like 72 hours. So so there was like an incredible co coalescing done by the establishment against the social Democrat. Right. Or Democratic Socialist, what have you. Um, and so how might have FDR dealt with the fact that like Bernie was going to win? You had David David Pluff on MSNBC basically saying, guys, this is over. Ber Bernie's to be the candidate. Just get used to it. And had Clyburn and everyone not fallen in line immediately. Right, we'd be in a different place right now. So, so how, okay, how would you think about you're that? You're asking. Okay, your question is, is your question is a good one, but you're putting it at the wrong moment in time. The point is that I'm saying that Bernie needed to build up a historical memory sure, right. in America from the beginning. Yeah, from the beginning. I, look, in in 2015-16, this was my big argument with with the Bernie Sanders campaign. He. He spoke in one remarkable speech of FDR and LBJ and Martin Luther King as a way of explaining democratic socialism. And I'm going to repeat, I actually think it's a waste of time to explain anything of a theoretical nature. It is better to explain to Americans what matters to them and put it in terms they understand. And they understand FDR and the New Deal, okay? Which was, by the way, FDR didn't call it social democracy. Bernie Sanders shouldn't have wasted his time calling it democratic socialism. That, I'm just well, saying. that's still but theoretical. Harvey, Harvey, okay. you're talking wait, about wait, what, so hold what, on. What, I'm going to answer what? your question. Okay, I'm going to answer your question. 
FDR knew the media was against him in the 1930s. He knew it, which is why he gave innumerable off-the-record um, press conferences to journalists. He knew the publishers and editors hated what he was about. He knew the journalists wanted exactly what he was about. So I'm go here's my point. Did you know, remember the weekend of the South Carolina debate, his last debate with, um, with Biden, Biden, okay? And on the Saturday night, he did a fire, they called it a fireside chat. Do you remember this? I do, yeah. It was on YouTube. You with me still? Now, yeah. the fact is, that was a cute reference. But the only people who would have turned in to, the, to that event would have been those of us who already wanted Bernie Sanders and a bunch of Republican trolls, right? The next day, the hour before the debate, Brianna Joy Gray did a one-hour event on YouTube built around the Economic Bill of Rights and the 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights with a host of people that marched through the hour. And she said, we, this is, this is to, to prepare all of you for what Bernie Sanders will be doing in the debate. You with me still? Okay? Oh, yeah. And yeah. then the debate came... And everyone remembers Bernie finally attacked Biden, but he didn't wield the FDR. He didn't wield the memory. And I'm telling you, I, I, look, I'm not telling you the outcome would have been would have been different. Look, he had innumerable powers against him. But, you talked, but you talked before about young people, how Roosevelt spoke to young people. And Bernie has young people. That's his the base, you might say. But he should be educating those young people to understand that they stand in a great progressive and radical tradition. Their aspirations are fundamentally American, and it's their elders who need to be educated right now. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I mean, yeah, I, I guess I tend to fall on the Alexi side, you know, that, that uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, I mean, the thing about FDR was that he had been a party insider for so long, and yet, and that's one of his more remarkable uh, characteristics was that he could he could pivot so quickly. And back then, the party was uh, substantially less ideological. I would say it, it, it's fair to say, you know, the the it was more of a sort of just political machine kind of apparatus, and. So given his position, he could sort of leverage that and turn the party left in a way that is patently much more difficult today when the party leadership is oriented around this sort of corrupt nexus of, of donations and favor trading and so on. Um, but yeah, well, listen, I, listen. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, and I'm glad you, you I'm, I don't want to break the solidarity up between you guys, okay? <laughs> but, <laughs> but, I, but I want you to say, like, look, FDR had to deal with a much more divided Democratic Party. FDR yeah, had to deal with, a, I mean, he had the Southern white supremacists that he had to hold on to for the vote at the same time that he uh, he's trying to appeal to a newly, if you like, a newly enfranchised black population, those who in the course of the, of the post-war 19, during the war 20s, during the 20s and now in the Depression, had moved north to Chicago, to New York and other cities, to those Jewish, Italian and, and, and you know, East European immigrants who need to be, if you like, embraced. It was a hell, of a, a hell of a task he had. Now, Bernie, in his case, right, he's got to transcend the generational divide, undeniably. He also knows if he's going to build the campaign. This was how, his whole campaign was predicated on bringing out people who didn't often turn out to vote. So I'm getting at the point, I'm telling you that 
history is the vehicle. What makes, what do Americans share? He's got to cultivate a historical imagination that Americans share. Look, I've been arguing this for five years. With you. Please do it. Let's do it. Let's, okay, well, start the clock now, Ryan. Five years counting now. Either that or bring it back in two weeks and we'll really argue this out. And Harvey, I I agree with you in terms of using narrative and history and and redeeming the promise and purpose of this country and and reminding people that these fights have been fought before, which which gives us a certain kind of comfort that these challenges are not new and they've been overcome and here's how, right? That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, And I think he should have done that, right? I also think that if Bernie was like FDR a little bit in terms of politicking, he would have buddied up to Jim Clyburn a little bit, rubbed his back or whatever he had to do, and he would have won the thing. Okay, so so I think. Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa! You know what? I agree with you. Look, I I didn't want to introduce that point. I also was going to say that Bernie has to learn how to use the telephone. Right. Yeah. He does admit himself that he is bad at this sort of buddy buddy backslapping part of part of politics. Right. But it's also the case that it, it really is the case. Look, Southern blacks vote pragmatically. OK, yeah. that, there's no question about it. But it is also the case that the veterans of the civil rights movement. And I'm thinking of John Lewis, the, who the great, one of the great heroes of the civil rights movement, ha- really have been unkind to Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Well, okay. they're, they're part of the establishment now. I mean, I don't think there's I mean, any J- doubt about that. J- Jesse, J- Jesse Jackson had a mild, mild support for him. He wrote something favorable. But even he, who was, you know, basically supported only by Bernie Sanders back in the day, and Bernie Sanders got punched in the face for it, um, even he wouldn't officially endorse Bernie Sanders. Well, you know, well, he did eventually. But here's the thing, you know. Bernie had to be dragged into admitting he was an active civil rights person in the in the sixties. Yeah, I mean yeah, he can't. Yeah. He doesn't even feel comfortable talking about his own story, let alone. Well, yeah, and that, that, that's history. a bit of his character. He's a, he's a, he's a bit too humble for to be a politician in certain ways. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. And, and I meant I meant Jesse Jackson leading up to South Carolina, where it would have oh, really yeah. really mattered. Oh yeah, no, no, absolutely, absolutely. Look, I mean. You know, we we could have a postmortem sometime on this time around. But in 2015, I remember being. I mean, do you remember when John Lewis endorsed Hillary, and 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 dissed Bernie? Yeah, he actually Oof. dissed him. She, he didn't just endorse Hillary. He actually said, "Where was Bernie in the in the civil rights? Where was Bernie right. in the 60s?" And of course, but by the way, Hillary Clinton was a gold Biden. Girl. No, 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 and Biden pretends that he was part of it, and he, and his oh, his very aides. Right. No, no, he's just lying, and his aides say you can't keep saying that; it's not true, and he just keeps doing it. <laughs> right. Plus, we could have used some good moderators who would have called him out as a liar and not have to make Bernie do it. <laughs> well, this is getting well, so. This is getting to Sorry, some of the structural away, problems. But, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. My point is this: that Franklin and Roosevelt himself has been utterly underestimated over and over again. And the beauty of Bernie's campaign, we might say, is the fact that if you go onto the website, it's as if this is the redemption of the of the of the Roosevelt legacy. But it's not just the redemption of the Roosevelt legacy. As I wrote in my Four Freedoms book, it's FDR in a generation. It's probably your grandparents and my parents' generation. And that is the generation that confronted the Great Depression, fought the, the war, and in the 1960s elected the most liberal Congress in American history that enacted Medicare, Medicaid, civil rights, voting rights, uh, environmental protections, workplace protections, marketplace protections, and immigration reform. And the fact is that we have utterly failed to take hold of that history. 
And we've allowed the Republicans to reduce the greatest generation to being war heroes, which in itself is worth celebrating. But they did far greater things than only that. They created the richest, most powerful nation on earth and raised up a whole generation out of poverty. And the Democrats turned their back on that. And Bernie was opening the door to our memories. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, I got to take off soon, but... You know, I, I think that, that the the main lesson I, I would take away from this is that, you know, uh, we're kind of in the radical tradition and very critical of like American imperialism and so on. But, sure. you know, you, you learn, I think, from the history of FDR that to be successful in reforming, you know, a country, the, uh, you know, to, to change, change it to become more just, more egalitarian and so on. You've got to sort of build a narrative that makes that politics part of the, you know, the 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 history and traditions of the country, you know, and 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 as as FDR did, maybe somewhat straining things here and there, but certainly, you know, there's threads you can pick out saying that this is our true legacy, that the people who want to live in a kind of economic dictatorship, uh, uh, where democracy is sort of meaningless, are betraying the the you know, the, the ideals that, you know, people fought for in the, the revolution and the civil war and, uh, and indeed in the, in the new deal. And I don't, you and know, it, it's a difficult yeah. needle to thread, but I don't think it's impossible to say that to, to, to sort of make an American case for, you know, social democracy, you know, whatever you want to call it, the content right. being a sort of broadly speaking, socialist uh, type of moral ideology and, and political and policy framework to say that the, we need to totally overhaul the system to make it more just and, and more egalitarian. And, uh, you know, the, the history definitely has to be part of that. And Thank I don't you. think it's, Absolutely. it's, it's not, it's not um, like we, we can't do that. And still as Bernie did call out the Contras and call out Kissinger. Like that is in keeping with what FDR did. I think speaking yeah. truth to power and still having the redeeming the promise of the country. Right. Right. I mean, look, I mean, we didn't even get into the question of FDR's commitment to the uh, United Nations and and a lot and and basically a good neighbor policy. I mean, I'm not denying the imperial role of the United States at any point. I trained in Latin American studies. Okay? I remember. Yeah. But first, you've got to win power. OK. Yep. You got to win power. Yeah. We can all feel good criticizing, but we got to win power. Before we let you go, Harvey, you're in Wisconsin right now, and uh, yes. FDR, you know, he understood how to, you know, he understood that the courts were political, and he understood the the need to try to pack the courts to threat what, what he had to threaten in order to get done for the people what was needed. Uh, what are your thoughts on what's going on in Wisconsin? What's going on with with the the evil DNC and Biden sending people to their deaths right to vote instead? things and, and supporting vote by mail what what, what would fdr uh, think and what should we all think about how Look, to approach this I mean, very I've been, we, I and we i and we in wisconsin have been living this since 2010 first with the walker governorship and the republican hold on on the legislature and indeed it's pretty clear that the republicans would rather win one more judge on the supreme court and even if it means vast numbers of wisconsinites will die the shocking thing is that Joe Biden has shown the degree to which the degree to which he really is willing to cooperate with Republicans. And, you know, what else can we say? OK, I mean, uh, it is hor- horrific to imagine 
that there are people who call themselves progressives who have rallied to Biden. By the way, I want to add one thing to the Wisconsin story. If you want to win and beat Trump, it's it's Bernie Sanders who you make your nominee. It was Bernie Sanders who would not have lost Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, and he would have, and it had a good shot, perhaps even at, at, at Ohio back in 2016, had he been the nominee. I can't help but say I am so tired of East Coast media folk <laughs> telling us of the electability of Joe Biden. If he should win and get and push out Trump, fine and dandy. But we on the left have to be organized and mobilized, basically, to push Joe Biden. Because sure as hell, he is not the president for liberals, progressives, and the left. By the way, if anyone is near him and can push him, push him. He might break a hip. <laughs> parody, parody, uh, satire. Um, yeah. This is, by the way, I can't thank you enough. I, I so I adore you guys. Okay. You're the best. Thanks. I mean, it's always a delight. It's always a delight learning from you and being with you and, and reading your work. Thank you for for coming on again. Uh, yeah, it's such a pleasure. I, I know you've got a, a long list of people to want on. Anytime, I'm the, I would love to rejoin you guys. Yeah, the book. The, the book is called FDR on Democracy. We'll link to it in the description. Definitely worth uh, picking up if you're, you know, interested in that sort of thing. Um, yeah, Harvey K. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. I look forward to the next time. Thank you very much. Talk, talk to you soon, my friend. Hello, everyone. Alexi the Greek here. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Just a friendly reminder that uh, to support the show and also to get access to a number of bonus episodes, you could join us on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash left anchor. $5 a month gets you a lot of episodes and really, really helps us out. So um, if that's something you're interested in and, and you want to show your support, we'd greatly appreciate it. Thanks so much.